Friends, this morning as we conclude uh, the book of Haggai together in our third and, and final week here over the summer, I ask you to turn to Haggai 2 near the end of the Old Testament. And it's the, uh, I actually got this wrong a couple of weeks ago, misspoke. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament, not the second shortest book in the whole Bible, as I said. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 23 together. And just those final two prophecies uh, that are given, both delivered uh, by Haggai to the people there uh, on the very same day. So turn there with me uh, to Haggai 2. And throughout the book so far, we've seen how God has spoken uh, to the people several times concerning their disobedience and their lack of devotion uh, to God after their exile, uh, how his presence among them was clearly not important, and that because of this, God has shown his displeasure as he promised. And so there has been a distinct lack of abundance as their crops have failed, as their life has been made more difficult. All of this by and through his hand, like all things, as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all, Lord God Almighty. He has called them to rebuild the temple now in these first chapter and a half. And he said he's going to both fill it with the gold and silver, the glory of the nations, and he's promised to be with his, te- with his people, and that this temple will be filled with his glory. Uh, even as we look at these promises and these encouragements, uh, we'll see uh, this morning, God is stopping again to remind his people of his holiness, their need for him, and how it's he alone that will rebuild his temple and will establish his king on an everlasting throne. A few weeks ago, I went to visit someone in town that works for the crown prince of Ras al and I was driving a car that I don't normally drive. It was a very beautiful, big, white SUV. I looked like a full Emirati with kind of blacked out windows. You couldn't see that it was me driving. And uh, something happened as I got to the barrier to get into this compound uh, that has never, ever happened before. As I pulled up uh, in this large, uh, beautiful SUV, the barrier, without me having to slow down, slowly rose in front of me. Normally, I get stopped. I, got, I wanted to go again this week in my own car. I was there for five minutes, filling in. They took my number, my Emirates ID, and my phone number, and the license plate, and my car is jet black and dirty. And yeah, It was a sad time, but a couple of weeks ago, it was just amazing. So the barrier slowly rose in front of me without me having to do anything. So when I had this car, when I pulled up in this white SUV, that told the security guard everything he needed to know. He didn't have to ask any questions. If you're driving this car, you can do whatever you like. It's true. Someone's driving it right now. They can go about town and do anything if they want. So more than just a barrier... Uh, we see uh, the, this morning in these verses the promises and authority given uh, by God, given to Zerubbabel as a signet ring. Because I had this car, barriers open to me, but Zerubbabel is named as the signet ring of God, the one carrying his seal, carrying his promises, and how all these pointed forward finally to how God would establish 
his kingdom here on earth. Uh, with his Messiah, his Savior, his Deliverer, his King. So turn with me, uh, if you can, to Haggai 2, and I'm going to read for us uh, how the Lord here is encouraging uh, his people once again. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any uh, of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Friends, as we look at the text together, I think uh, the main point of this passage, and so the main point of our time is, God's promised king carries all authority and deserves all praise. God's promised king carries all authority and deserves all praise. Our text for today is just looking there at two separate prophecies, and each of these prophecies just has two points, two in the first and two in the second, and so those are going to be our four points for our time together. So in verses 10 to 14, our first point is the defilement of God's people. The defilement of God's people. Verses 15 to 19, we see the blessings of God's people. The blessings of God's people. As you look at the second prophecy, verse uh, point three in verses 20 to 22, kingdom destruction Kingdom destruction. And then in verse 23, our fourth point, kingdom restoration. Kingdom restoration. 
So that first point, the defilement of God's people. Look there at verses 10 to 14 with me. And as we jump into the text, we're given a date straight away in the ninth month. We know that this is now three months after the beginning of the renewal work on the temple. These dates, again, they're, they're here. They're in the text for us. They're important. They show us the timeline of these real events happening. And also, they help us when we understand the, the calendar of this farming people. These messages and where they're happening is important. When we understand all of these details, they help us further understand all that is happening in the text, especially as we begin to hear more about crops, more about failure, or their growth, and how much seed is in the barns. Uh, this date that we're given is actually puts the prophecy right at the time when the seeding of the fields would be happening, right after, immediately after the previous harvest was gathered in, and take the seeds and begin to plant them at this time of the year. Whether the harvest was big or small, it had been brought in, it was sorted, and it was time to go again for the people. We'll come back to that in verse 19. We'll see why that's important. But the Lord, again, he's speaking to his people through Haggai, his prophet. So look with me at verse 11 there. God begins to speak. We're again reminded that he is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of all things, Lord God Almighty. We must not forget that it's he, God, that is speaking. So here we have a clear command from God for Haggai to speak to the priests and for the priests to be asked to give their official verdict, their judgment, their opinion on what is about to come. There are a couple of things here that I want us just to, to stop and consider straight away. First is that God at different times has appointed different leaders for his people, different offices, and has made clear each time. The New Testament is clear that the church is meant to be led by elders as a group of men that have all carry the qualifications outlined in Titus 1, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3. And we see that the New Testament is clear that a church is also meant to be served by deacons. These are uh, very similar qualifications for them, for these men and women who serve as deacons there in 1 Timothy 3. So we have a church that is meant to be elder-led and deacon-served. And we th I think we also see that the church is to be ruled by the congregation. If we look there at Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2. The congregation is given the authority over the church. So the elders at this church have been called by this congregation here to help lead and shepherd and teach not anywhere else, but here at this local church to offer suggestions with membership meetings and to be given the responsibility to lead and teach in various ways, even as I'm doing right now. So here we have at this church an elder-led, deacon-served, congregational church where the elders are seeking, I hope you see that week in and week out, to lead by example and to encourage the congregation to do the same things. And the deacons help release the elders and the congregation to do this, to share the load. I just want to pause and just point that out, that God has ordered his people and God has given his people uh, at all times different leaders. 
God's people have always been an organized and led people in various ways. We see that time and time again that God is a God of order. He has told us how he wants things to be done. And I think we see that again in our verse. This is what uh, the priests and the prophets are doing. The prophets had a particular role. And I think here we see the priests do too. God does not need the priest's clarification on this issue of cleanliness in verses 12 and 13. But God and, and therefore Haggai is maintaining. He's using these God-appointed roles and structures that are in place to bring about his message to his people, to bring clarity to his people, to bring authority. Uh, And so the priests here are just simply included in that process as they naturally would have been for the people of God at this time. I hope you know that God uh, cares about his people. He cares about how they are led and how These things are all there for a particular purpose, ultimately for his glory and his worship. So the priest's purpose here is to help serve the people of God by rightly applying his law, by making sure they were worshiping him in the correct way. We know that the people had been worshiping incorrectly so far. I don't think this this prophecy for us is not simply just to the priest, but it's to all people. Haggai is just maintaining the the proper order within this structure to convey a message and then to have it confirmed by those that do have authority over these matters in the community. So we see there with the priests, and then we look at these two connected scenarios, these two connected questions being asked in verse 12. Look there with me. Ultimately, the priests are being asked to give a judgment from the law. A judgment against the people and their cleanliness, about their defilement, about what it means to be sanctified and what the law of God says on the matter. So have a look at this first scenario which Haggai is asking the priests. He's effectively saying, if I use the corner of my shirt to carry some holy meat for sacrifice, is then the corner of my shirt holy and is that holiness transferred to anything else that I touch. When I carry the meat in my shirt and then I touch something else, does it make that other thing holy? The priests, that's what we're seeing there in verse 12. So we know according to the law that uh, holy meat does make things holy that it touches. We know that from Leviticus in the Old Testament. The meat really is, is not the important Thing here. These are just uh, helpful analogies for us. So don't worry about what kind of meat it is or what sacrifice was being done or all the different questions that I've considered this week. Uh, what is holy and what's uh, consecrated? If something is consecrated, something set apart, it is something special. Haggai is really asking the question that can holy object number one pass on its holiness to object number two, and can, can this holy object now pass on that to number three? References made to the sacrificial system, to other foods, what they're worshiping. The priest's answer straight away, so clearly and simply for us. Just the word no. They don't give anything else to us at this point. Just a simple no. They do not. 
They're saying that of course this doesn't happen. We know that in the, the Jewish law, the object too does become holy when it touches something like the meat. We're here told that it does not transfer to number three. So simply being close to something holy or involved in something holy does not immediately make you holy. So just hold that thought for a second. Being close to something holy doesn't automatically make you holy. And it's really the same kind of question. These two are linked in our second scenario, but really just from a positive perspective. So the second analogy, the question the Lord clarifies through Haggai and with confirmation from the priest that if anything is dirty and unclean and it touches something else, whether it's the sacrificial items or other food items, these things are definitely made dirty and unclean. The answer, so clear again from the priest, so direct, yes, it does become unclean. Friends, I think we see this, you know this in your own lives. Uncleanness passes on far easier than holiness. Uncleanness passes on far easier than holiness. What's it like for you to be in an unhelpful conversation for too long? And how quickly do you begin to gossip yourself? How quickly when we watch something perhaps uh, slightly inappropriate on Netflix that our minds find it a little bit harder. We're a little bit slower to maybe fast forward or skip next time. What's it like to, to maybe date someone who's not on the same page as you and how quickly we begin to make decisions that we wouldn't have done a couple of months before. Decisions of this world that Go against what the Lord has commanded. Friends, holiness begins in the heart. Holiness begins in the heart. This is what the Israelites are about to find out. It's a hard pill for them to swallow. And I think it's the same for many, if not all of us here today. What happens on the outside, what happens to the viewing world, what you do with your actions is important. But we need to make sure it's in our own lives, in our our reflection of what is going on in our hearts on the inside uh, that we prioritize most, not the other way around. We can be tempted to think that, and I will see this with the Israelites, that if we just do some of the right things, then we're living holy lives. Whether that is sacrificing meat for them or perhaps that's attending church for us, we can think that by doing the right things, things, we are living holy lives. Maybe it's signing up to do the Friday night building restoration project at the temple. Or for us, maybe it's going along to growth group and just turning up. Don't get me wrong. These are all good things, great things for them to be involved in or for us to be involved in here today. But there is no doubt these things do not make you a Christian. They do not make you holy before God. This is what we're about to see in verse 14. I think the main point of this particular prophecy is 
It's really the reason for these two questions, these two analogies. Does working hard and doing and being near something holy make you holy? I think the answer here is clearly no. And does being involved in sin and being close to sin and unclean things lead to greater sin and uncleanness? Yes, it does. This is the judgment that we're about to see dished out on the Israelites in verse 14. Look there, it's crystal clear. So it is with this people, with every work of their hands. Friends, this is just brutal for the people hearing this. Being back in the Holy Land does not make them holy. Being involved in rebuilding the temple does not make them holy. Making sacrifices on makeshift altars does not make them holy. There is sin and death and destruction sitting there right in the midst of the people, the stench of the rotten temple, unbuilt, unfinished, just sitting there in their midst as a reminder. They are all unclean due to its current state. God has been so clear. He's telling them what it looks like from his perspective and not their own. Look at the middle of verse 14. He says, with this nation before me. You see what God is seeing and what God sees in our lives is different. As the holy God of the universe, his view of us and our sin is wildly different. And it's the only one that matters, friends. How God views your sin is radically different to how you see it yourself. Your own heart will lie to you time and time again. People didn't see their sin. They thought it was all fine. Perhaps their their mom or perhaps their work colleague or their boyfriend was saying to them, look, it's totally fine. You do you. Do what you want to do. Do what makes you feel comfortable. If you don't want to rebuild the temple, don't rebuild the temple. It's not a big deal. Friends, we see here to God, he sees things differently. He doesn't see things like we see them. He doesn't see things like you see them. God is crystal clear. Let me ask you, are you living your life according to God's word? Or are you living your life according to your own? Are you living your life according to God's word? Or are you living your life according to your own? Again, the people not referred to as my people by the Lord, but as this people. Sin of a people had affected all under this covenant. They had not desired God. They had not worshipped God. They had simply done these tasks. That task itself, they thought, was important. Friend, God wants their worship. God wants their hearts. He wants their attention. He's so jealous for it. It's the Lord God Almighty we're talking about. He wants all of them. Friends, it's the same for you. God wants your heart. My friend Drew is probably one of the most 
if not the most engaged person I've ever spoken to. And I'm not talking in a Caleb Varghese kind of way. I mean, when you're talking to him, you have his full attention. It's an amazing thing. It's something that never ceases to just impress me and also make me and just really anyone else who speaks to him feel special. Wonderful thing is that he's just like that with everyone. If you spend time with him, you feel listened to, you feel heard, you know he is listening to every word you say and what an incredible gift that is. I don't know about you, but we also all know what it's like to have coffee with someone or lunch with someone who doesn't really want to be there or is maybe just not interested. I know I'm guilty of this sometimes on the receiving and the giving end. You know when you're sat opposite them, they're just thinking about other things. They're, maybe they're checking their phone, they're looking out the window, they're just too busy, or maybe they turn up late. Well, that tells us a lot about them and how they view you and how much interest they have in you. Well, here we have the God of the universe saying to people, put your phone down. Stop looking out the window. Put your exile out of your minds. Stop staring at the ruins and worship me. Friends, it's very simple. He wants the worship. He wants the hearts of the people. And right now, all they have done has been unclean. It's been dirty, worthless, because it was not for him. It was for them. It's their disobedience that brings God's displeasure. If we turn to our second point, look with me at verses 15 to 19. The blessing of God's people. The blessing of God's people. I think what we see in verses 15 to 17 is just an explanation of what God has done to their crops as a consequence of this lack of worship and what he wanted to happen and how it's he that has resolved the situation yet again. The section just framed by the same phrase repeated, demanding that the people do what they've been asked to do twice already. Consider their situation. The original text literally reads as, put your hearts on this. This may sound a a bit strange, but it means that he's calling them to take this seriously. Consider these things. Consider them deeply in your hearts. Set your heart upon this issue, because your heart affects your worship. The Lord has asked them how they got on before the temple was being rebuilt. And again, we go back over the same reiteration, like in chapter 1. We're going to see how the crops failed. When you need 20 bags of flour, there were only 10. When you needed 50 bottles of wine, there were only 20. And what do we know here happened to all the crops? Look there at verse 17. How does God begin? I struck you and all the products of your toil. There's to be no doubt. All of this, the way in which God has totally destroyed their crops, not causing them to 
and not only kind of causing them to shrink and die in the heat, which I think we all understand if you, like me, went away for a couple of weeks and left some plants at your house this summer, all shriveled up and dead. That's the blight that we see mentioned there. But also, the crops are rotten with damp. So not only shriveled and dead from the heat, but rotten with damp. That's what the mildew there means. And then they were crushed and destroyed. There was nothing left of these crops. That's the hail that you see. All jokes aside, I think, I feel like God is making it so clear. He uses everything at his disposal as the God of the universe to just crush their crops. A, because of their disobedience, and B, the answer is there at the end of verse 17. Yet you did not turn to me. Yet you did not turn to me. This is what he wants. He's, God is so clear. As we've already said, he wants their heart. He wants their worship. And friends, it's the same with you, even in your disobedience. God wants your heart. I don't know what kind of week you've had. Perhaps you've considered running away from the Lord this week, but he wants your heart. He welcomes you back in as a loving and gracious father. He wants your heart. He wants your worship. Here in our verses, we know that God is using the circumstances of the people to keep his promises and to demonstrate the blessings and the curses that he has promised, but also to draw the people to himself. That's the deep encouragement of this prophecy. It's about to come. It's about to drop in verse 19. So on the one hand, we have this deep reflection on their disobedience and sin. And on the other, we see God's mercy. We see God's grace as he's called them to rebuild his temple. He's going to fill it with his glory and that of the nations. Friends, this is a, a huge turning point for the people. I mentioned it briefly at the beginning, but... This was the seed planting season for the people. So we see these questions in verse 19 making sense. Look there. Is the seed yet in the barn and the other fruits have not come yet? But here we know that this is because the seeds have been planted and that so far the other fruits have not yielded any fruit. But this coming Harvest is not going to be like the ones before. God says, but from this day on, I will bless you. What good news for the people. After such an awful time, the people are now deeply encouraged by the abundant and unrequired blessing of the Lord. Undeserved. Under this covenant, this really does mean a physical and material blessing with the harvest that they did not have before. They have God's presence and now in his grace after encouraging their obedience with the temple as its stones are now being laid, he's going to bless them. When they live in obedience and the will of God, they see a great difference in their lives and friends. This should be the same for us. Don't misunderstand me. The New Testament is very clear that this does not mean 
material wealth or health that is guaranteed. Friends, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. Please hear me on that. It gives people a false hope for today and misses out on the rich blessings that God has provided for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, of new life, of an eternal hope, not one placed in the wealth and the health that we have in this world, but one we look forward to in eternity. His Holy Spirit now in us, our hearts transformed from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. That means we too should witness a change and a difference as some of the fruit of the Spirit should now be on display in our lives. Your lives, friend, if you've trusted Christ, you were dead without life. You were hopeless in your sin. But now because of what Christ has done, God in His grace has also promised to bless His people today with eternal life. And our devotion and our worship flow out of this changed heart. They don't cause a change of heart. We're not blessed because of our change of heart and what we do in response to God. Because of all that God has done, we worship, honor, and obey Him. We cannot earn eternal life, friends. If you do not follow Jesus Christ, you do not trust him, there is no way to be saved from eternal punishment and separation from God. None. There is nothing you can do on your own. So here we see the Lord encourages the people. And then we also see on the same day, he tells them more of what he will do. Another prophecy and just a slightly shorter third and fourth points. You'd be glad to hear. Our third point, look there with me, the second prophecy, in particular verses 20 and 22, kingdom destruction, kingdom destruction. See God clearly making the point to the people, and in particular, their leaders are rubbable through this next prophecy. Not only is he going to bless the people, but no matter what is going on in the world around them, his kingdom will be established. And all others will fall away. Friends, God is in total control. Look at the clear subject of these verses. Who is the person speaking and acting? It's God. Do we see anyone else even mentioned here? I will shake. I will overthrow. I will destroy. I will kill. Friends, God is making it clear to Zerubbabel to encourage and strengthen him and his leadership that again, the Lord, in a time to come with echoes of the the early parts of Haggai 2, will not only bring in the glory of the nations, but ultimately, the other kingdoms of this world will give way to his kingdom. What's going on here is specific and complete. 21 and 22 are crystal clear for us. He will shake the heavens and the earth and he will overthrow whoever is on the throne in each kingdom and he will deal with the power and influence of the nations and he will destroy the military might of the nations. We don't see any Jewish armies or military leaders mentioned here. 
Friends, this is all by God's own hand. He is the one doing this and making a way for his kingdom to be established. This is all pointing forward with urgency, with excitement. The people here, if you've been reading, they're in a desperate and vulnerable position just months before. Even now in their disobedience. And God is again reminding them of his faithfulness, his provision. What a deep encouragement this would have been for Zerubbabel as he looked around and he saw the mighty kings and the vast armies that surrounded them geographically. Just this this small farming nation. But for him, the same for us today, when all around seems overwhelming, to know that the only God, the Lord of hosts, was with them. But ultimately, he would establish his everlasting kingdom through his people and his chosen king. What a hope. Look with me at verse 23 and this great hope as we conclude our time together with our fourth point. Verse 23, kingdom restoration. Kingdom restoration. Friends, I think verse 23 is really quite special in this book and also within the life of Zerubbabel, but also in redemption history of all that God is doing from the beginning of time through to the coming of Christ. On this coming day, the Lord, who we see named three times just in this one verse, is going to establish Zerubbabel as the king. It's important to remember is 500 years before in 2 Samuel, God has promised to maintain the line of Davidic kings. With the exile happening, all of this was put in jeopardy. Jehoiakim was removed, but strangely not killed. In this verse, we see the completion and the finishing of this curse that was handed out in a huge turning point in history. Now we have the same king's grandson, Zerubbabel, now leading the people. We have the bloodline kept and preserved. Zerubbabel carrying great hope there in his veins. With Jehoiakim, he was told by God that if he had been a signet ring, then God would have pulled him off and thrown him away from his fingers. But with Zerubbabel, we have him here being told that he will be worn and displayed in glory like a signet ring. Friends, you might be asking the same question that many have asked. What is a signet ring? Why is that important? What does that even mean? Sounds good, but I'm not sure exactly what it means. Well, a signet ring really is a special thing. It's a ring that carries the seal of the king. It carries with it the promise and the bearer of that ring carrying the favor of the one it belongs to. It's what kings would have used on their finger when they were sealing a document in the wax to leave their seal, their mark, their promise. It was a guarantee their promises would be kept. It's a symbol of this promise and it carries the full weight 
of the owner. The Lord here declares that Zerubbabel has been chosen. This seal, this signet ring being declared by the Lord of hosts is God again declaring and reiterating his promise of one to come and that Zerubbabel is carrying out the will of God. He carries the authority and favor of God. We've now seen how other kingdoms will be rocked and destroyed and now Zerubbabel is to carry this promise of God. This descendant of David, one who leads and restores rebellious exiles, one who will build the temple and establish worship to God. One reconciling many people to God through proper worship and a right sacrifice. Friends, Zerubbabel is the promise. Zerubbabel is the signet ring sealing what God has done, securing it, but also pointing forward to one who is greater, one still to come. What is really amazing about this conclusion is that the people and Zerubbabel are to look forward to a day when God's chosen Messiah will come. That all these things, all these truths about Zerubbabel, just a glimpse, just signposts pointing forward to one who is greater and mightier, also chosen by God, still to come. You may not have heard of Zerubbabel before this morning or maybe uh, these last couple of weeks if you've read Haggai in preparation. We see something amazing. If you look at Matthew 1 or Luke 3 and the genealogies of Jesus, right there in the middle of both of these long lists, as we see who Jesus is in his full humanity with his mother's side and his legal father, Right there in the middle of this messianic family tree, we see right there the name of Zerubbabel. Friends, through this book and then Zerubbabel, we are seeing a story of what God has done for this people, but also what God has done for many sinners. There would be one that would come whose cloak someone did touch and was made clean. There would be one that would come that would not only visit the temple, but would be the temple and be the sacrifice so that God's kingdom should never fail. One who would come, who would die, who would be buried and would rise again to sit on an everlasting throne that was bought by his own blood. Friends, Jesus is the coming Messiah. Jesus is the King of Kings. It's because of these wonderful truths that many sinners like me and like you can be made right with God. His death happening so that many can have eternal life. Zerubbabel here established as the signet ring and this promise brought great hope and encouragement to the people. But these things all find their fulfillment and their final completion in Jesus Christ. Friends, it's not a mystery for us anymore. We know more than the Israelites would have done who heard Haggai's prophecy. 
Jesus has come and Jesus is the king. It was on the the cross that the good news of Jesus was delivered by Jesus, was signed by Jesus, was completed by Jesus and sealed by Jesus. It's there that he puts his seal on the completion of the law and declares that it is finished. It is fulfilled As God's chosen servant, the one carrying all the power and dominion of God, he came and he did what no one else could do. In him, everything that came before, all of it completed and fulfilled. Friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, he has also now sealed every believer with his promise by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 reminds us that like a signet ring, that promises all that the coat of arms carries, you now too, if you're a Christian here this morning, now carry God's seal on your hearts by the Holy Spirit. A signet ring points forward to all that has come like Zerubbabel did for Jesus. And friend, the Holy Spirit seals us and reminds us every day he's with us, helping us, the believer. What an amazing gift. What a foretaste of an eternity that we will spend with God in worship and adoration. Friends, the Old Testament, every detail here as we conclude Haggai is so crucial for us as we dig into it and we see the cross at the very center of history. It's not an accident. Cross is not a a second thought or a quick fix. It's God's plan from the beginning. So that his people could be reconciled to him. That through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. People from every tribe. Every tongue. Every nation. As we see just a beautiful glimpse of that here this morning. As we look around. All of those brought before his throne. In this life. And they would live under his glorious reign for all eternity. He is seated on the throne right now. His kingdom is being established and for all who believe and trust Christ not their own works not their own sacrifices you will spend eternity with him and can live in hope today if you trust in Christ then you have been sealed in him and you carry his promise and we know that finally friends passing through this short life and then death there we will see with our own eyes all that for now We can only see by faith. Hold fast to the promises of God. This hope is being offered to you again this morning. It's my prayer that uh, every Sunday, someone in this place hears the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ for the first time. We pray that many here in Ras Al-Khaimah would turn from their old lives and receive the gift of faith that God gives through Jesus Christ. Ask God, if you don't know him, for that gift this morning. No, there there is nothing that you can do or say or pay to get it on your own. It is his wonderful gift.